welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. If you like what you hear today, please rate and review kindly. This show is a series of conversations with educators and learners to try and deconstruct some of the stereotypes around education. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. Thank you so much for being here today. I will get to the episode with Aaron Johnston from Mr. J's Learning Space on Instagram. He is a primary educator, assistant principal, really excited around visual learning and flexible learning spaces. And as I said, I will get to that conversation. But prior to that, I want to acknowledge something that we actually chatted about here in our conversation that has exploded all over Instagram in the Teachergram community. And I feel a little bit like an outsider in this community, which is good for me. It's kind of a nice place to sit observing what's going on and kind of doing my own little thing with the podcast and getting my own guests on and, you know, chatting to some people through Instagram, but some people that I know and some people that I've taught and just having a wide variety of people on here. But On the Instagram teacher platform, there has been a lot of people speaking out around the anxiety created from accounts that seem to have it all together, have all these great resources, have the beautiful classrooms and all of the prep that people are doing over the holidays. And to be fair, I'm a secondary teacher. I don't have my own classroom and so my prep is purely resource-based and class prep, but I would like to say that I've spoken a bit about this, especially in my blogs, about the idea of giving your power away. No one can make you feel anything. No one can make you react in any way. It is purely up to you and your choice. So if I'm going to say anything here, and I was having a great conversation with Miss Tangerine from Instagram, I'll pop her information in the show notes because she's a wonderful resource to follow as well, a secondary teacher in Melbourne. But we were chatting about the idea that it's about discernment, responsibility, and not taking the blame out of other people when you have the power to control your own Instagram feed and who you follow and what you follow. And if you're a student listening, adults do not have it all together and certainly do not know exactly how to navigate this online world. And if you are following someone in any respect, whether that is a fashion blogger or another parent or someone with nutritional values or, you know, tells you how to eat and how to exercise or whatever, do it because you love it and because it inspires you, not because it's going to make you feel bad about yourself. And I mean, I speak about this with Jess in Dance Like No One's Watching, the second podcast episode, and she is a psychologist around the negativity that can be created around social media and literally it can be created around any aspect. It's anywhere that you feel as though you're looking at something that makes you feel less than or lacking or not okay or insecure. Take the power back here. This is no one's responsibility but yours to decide what you're looking at, whether you need to look at it at all. You're welcome to take a break from social media. It's up to you. I've certainly taken breaks from social media at times and it's been great And I know that I've referenced Glennon Doyle several times on this podcast, but in her book Untamed, she does talk about this idea around hot yoga. And I used to love hot yoga. And so I completely understand this 
analogy about this woman who goes to hot yoga for the first time and hated every minute of it and sweated through it and almost passed out. And at the end, she acknowledges that the door was open the whole time. She decided to endure it. She decided to listen to the instructor when they said when to have your water, when to sit down. And it is very like that. It's very, very disciplined if you're in a hot yoga room. But at the end of the day, it really is your choice to do and to consume and to be a part of anything. And on the flip side of that, I would also say it's your choice to post what you like on your page and to be as authentic or inauthentic as you wish. It is your space. And yeah, I just find the idea of performing for an audience and not doing what you really want, but doing what you think is going to get the most likes to be somewhat problematic as well. So yeah, as I said, take the power back and do what you feel is right to do, whether that's consuming or creating or cultivating, whatever that is, do what makes you happy in your own space. Surrounding yourself with the people and the information and the content that makes you feel good and that inspires you. So yeah, just from me to you. So here is now my conversation with Aaron Johnston, who is an incredible advocate for students, for well-being, for shifting pedagogy to ensure that students are well supported. And yeah, I'm really excited for you to hear this one. Hello, Aaron. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm really, really good. Thank you. So we've overcome some of the technical difficulties of this conversation and I'm so excited to have it. So I would love to ask you about your educational experiences, both as a teacher and a student. Yeah, so I've been teaching, this is my 13th year of teaching. So I started off just doing casual teaching. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, just working at local schools and sort of for six months did casual teaching, being in different schools every day, which I actually loved because it's such a great experience getting into different schools and seeing different classrooms and seeing, like picking up, the gold things from all the schools that you work at gives you like a really, uh, I guess, broad range of experiences. So that was really great. I did that for six months and then I sort of fell into a contract position for 12 months, literally by just being in the right place at the right time. I was doing casual day and the teacher had fallen down the stairs the day before. So I got put onto that class for, I think five days and they were apparently like the worst class in the school and I did apparently a good job and then the numbers in the school went up. So in New South Wales, executive sort of positions are all dependent on numbers in the school and the numbers at the school I was at went up so they were able to have a off-class deputy principal. So then one of the assistant principals went into that role and then I was asked to sort of take on what would have been their class and share with them. So I did that that whole year. So it was, like I said, just being the right place at the right time. And the principal was like, Hey, we've got this position now for the year. We'd love you to do it. So yeah, job shared for that year. And then from there I went into staying at the same school, but doing some different roles. So I did a learning and support teacher. So obviously doing lots of different things with supporting students individually. And then I had the opportunity to be a student wellbeing officer for two Mm. years. So I did that as well, as well as job sharing on some classes. And then after that, 
I was on class full time, you know, having my own my own class. And I was at that school for five years doing all those different roles, but really wanted a permanent job. So I'd applied for a few jobs out of the school and, you know, always missed out, always came second, got to a point where I thought, no, as much as I love it here, I'm going to take a leap of faith and, you know, start applying elsewhere. And I did that and I managed to pick up a job permanent position, found out I had it on the very last day of term four. And then I sort of was at that school for two years and again, fell into the opportunity to relieve as assistant principal because our principal had to take some leave. So my assistant principal was relieving as principal and it was sort of like, oh, just do it for a couple of weeks because I really didn't want to be in a leadership position sort of not on my my radar I was just happy to be a classroom teacher and focus on those kids in my room so I was like okay I'll do it for a couple of weeks but it was actually having that opportunity to be on the executive team and see that I could have an impact on the learning of students outside of my classroom because I was always passionate about you know giving my students the best opportunities possible and being the best teacher I could do and making sure they were getting the best you know experience at school and then having that opportunity to be in a leadership position going hang on a minute I actually have the opportunity to make sure that all of the students get that same level of quality and it sort of lit this fire in me to go this is actually what I really want to do Mm. and then our principal came back and she sort of said, you know, the assistant principals here, they're not going anywhere. They're, they're sort of all, you know, young and newly appointed. So she encouraged me to look elsewhere for relieving assistant principal positions. So I did that. I got a relieving assistant principal job for 12 months at a school just around the corner. And I was there doing that. And the principal at that school was, you know, super happy with the job I was doing and was sort of going, hey, we'd love to hopefully keep you if the job comes comes up but apply for assistant principal jobs to you know work on your cv mm. and you know get there and i thought okay yep no worries never done an assistant principal cv did one got an interview got the job this is where i am today at the school i'm at now but the funny thing is it's funny the way things work out because that school i was relieving assistant principal for the end of the year, the person I was relieving for who was going to retire decided they didn't want to retire. Mm. They'd had enough time off and they were coming back. So that would have left me with no position. I'd have to go back to my previous school in my teacher position. So it's funny the way things work out. But yeah, along that journey, I guess I've been really heavily involved in well-being and welfare and things like that with students. So that's my story. As a student, honest, I was the biggest goody-goody. Okay. Oh my goodness, tears hit for sure. And do you find that I've had this conversation a few times, and most teachers that come on here say something similar? They loved education, they saw the relevance of it, they understood that it was better to kind of go along with and be polite and respectful than to make waves. Do you find that being that way yourself, it can be challenging to meet behaviors that you don't necessarily understand or you would never have exhibited as a student yourself? Definitely. And, you know, like I said, I was, I was a real goody goody. I did actually go to a school that was, you know, a bit of a challenging school. So I remember I I was in year two and we had three teachers in the one year because they just didn't want to stay. But there was just, you know, several kids in that class that were challenging. And I would sit back and go as a student, like, what are they doing? 
why do they want to get in trouble? What is going on? Yes. Uh, then as a teacher, a little bit the same, you know, didn't, didn't really understand why kids did certain things. But the thing I've learned in my journey so far is, you know, that when you have behaviours and things like that, it's a byproduct of something else that's going on and we need to not focus on the behaviour in itself because that's not really the issue. It's a um, symptom. We have yeah. to actually, we have to look deeper at what is going on to, you know, to bring that behaviour about, whether it's, you know, a lack of belonging or connection or self-belief or self-esteem, you know, there's a huge range of things that that exhibit themselves in, I guess, challenging or behaviours that as teachers we aren't, you know, desiring. Um, mm. But if we focus on the behaviour, we're never actually going to see a change because the behaviour isn't really the issue. There's something else that is is going on and it's our job as educators i think is to find out what that is um and do what we can i mean we can't always fix every problem but there are things that we can do but too often i think we just get focused on the behavior i think you're right i was having a conversation with now retired actually but was an educator for a long time and he was in a lot of student management roles and he made the comment about disrespectful students and his go-to would be to just, it's a reality check and to pretty much absorb all the power in the space. That was really what he was saying. And I was arguing back and saying, but all you're doing is, is solving an issue in that moment rather than solving the bigger picture. And, the, and because it's, it's likely that that situation, that behavior will come about again because you haven't actually cured the root cause, as you're saying. I feel like sometimes time and energy, it's easier to just put a bandaid on things sometimes. And I also think that the education system of the time and time gone past is much more about discipline and respect than it is about that, you know, uncovering and supporting. And I think we're moving definitely. And I'm wondering if primary school does this better than secondary school, because you do have that kid all day, every day for a whole year and it's worth it for you to get to the bottom. Whereas if you are in, you know, a coordination role and you see that student once every month, it's easier to just, deal with that situation quickly but how do we move or how do we try and encourage other teachers to come to that place of nurturing well-being understanding our students rather than just fixing or putting a band-aid over a situation yeah i think you're right and the biggest the biggest thing is time it takes time and it comes down to relationships and i think as a primary school teacher like you said we have that opportunity to really build those strong relationships so for me i invest a lot of time at the start of the year in just building quality relationships with my students because I know in the long run that's going to benefit me when it comes to dealing with issues or situations because we've got a strong foundation of, you know, connection, we know each other. And I used to, as as a teacher, be very sort of closed off and I guess not shared too much of myself. Yeah. But I've actually learned that building mm-hmm. relationships with students with anybody is a two-way street and we actually have to let them into our lives as much as we want them to let us into theirs. So, you know, sharing not just who I am as a teacher, but, you know, the students know about my family and I've got two kids. And it's it's funny because, you know, I'll see them in the holidays or things like that and they'll ask, oh, did Serenity have a good Christmas? Because we've got that relationship 
where we've built a connection because I'm sharing myself with them. And I think one of the biggest things in relationships is like we want our kids to acknowledge when they've made a mistake or they've had an issue, but we actually need to be willing to do the same and have moments where as a teacher you go, you know what, guys, that was a bad call. I'm really sorry. And if we model that, I think it helps build those connections, but also builds that bridge of mutual respect, which is ideally what we want, not respect that's just demanded by your position, but respect that's earned because that's real respect. And when it does come to situations where we have to intervene, I think there is a much greater outcome because it's not, I guess, that respect I have to give you. It's actually respect that I want to give you because you're genuine and you're interested in my life, but you also let me into yours, if, if that makes sense. It makes complete and sense. I and I, I think at the moment I talk about the idea of this great unlearn that's happening in education at the moment and even in society. I mean, what's going on in America at the moment is, you know, shining a light on something that no one's been willing to talk about the way that they should be. And so there's a lot of unlearning going on about what we thought was right is perhaps not. And same with education. There's a lot of unlearning about, you know, antiquated ideologies and things that even in teaching that we expect or that we see as good teaching. And a big thing I think is that idea of boundaries first, relationships second. I think that we were all, well, I I'll take this at least, it was always about have a very clear boundary, ensure you're not overstepping the boundary, ensure that you are always the teacher, don't get too personal, don't get too close. And all of that was about protection. And I completely understand that. But if you are so walled off from your students and you don't allow yourself to be human in any way, and often that was kind of the rhetoric that I was sort of given, especially as a young teacher, because we're very scared, especially at secondary school, of getting too close. But the thing is, without that humanity and without them being able to see you as human making mistakes, having to fix things, currently learning, even the fact that you're not perfect, I think that those things are almost more important and the boundaries will be created along with that rather than one first and then the second. Mm, absolutely. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I can understand for you as a secondary teacher, it's a lot harder when you don't have the same amount of time that we have as primary school teachers because really it does come down to time and you know in our schools time is the thing we have the least amount of mm. you know it's the thing we lack the most with everything that we've got to do but I think it pays off in the end when we do take time to get to know our students and be interested in their lives and allow them to you know see into our our life and that like you said we are a person we do make mistakes. We don't get it. We don't get it right that we are still learning and we don't know it all. I think that's, you know, a powerful thing. Mm. We have very, very heavy curriculum in terms of how much we have to get through and disseminate. As an AP, what are your thoughts on pairing back the curriculum? Or do you think it's good? Or do you think that we should be allowed more opportunity to, as you say, focus on the individuals in our room, create relationships? Or is there a way of manipulating the curriculum to sort of allow that to happen, do you think? You know what, there are so many, I guess, things about the curriculum that if I had the power, I would change. Okay. I think number one is, like you've said, our curriculum is is all content knowledge. Yes. Basically, we are just disseminating, we're filling them up with content knowledge and we just want them to be able to parrot it back to us. Yes. And is that real 
is that real knowledge and learning? Is that powerful? Is that going to serve kids well in their future? Because that's our job as educators is to be preparing them for the future and life. Mm. But when we're just driven by content and just giving them facts and information that we expect them to just be able to regurgitate, is that really what learning is? Not necessarily. I mean, we do have skills that we are, you know, supposed to be teaching, but in reality, the skills always come second because of the the content that we have to get through. And it really needs to be, in my opinion, the other way around. The skills should be the focus, the things that kids are going to need to use and apply in different situations needs to be the number one focus. It should be, I think, definitely a skills-based curriculum rather than a content and knowledge curriculum. That's the focus. So that's the first thing that drives me batty is just the amount of information we have to convey. The second thing is, you know, having this one size fits all, you know, cookie cutter sort of mentality. I know, you know, Sir Ken Robinson is a favourite of mine and his whole idea that he talked about, you know, school is very much like a production line and Mm. at the end of it, everybody is supposed to come out the same and that is not how humans work. That is not how life works. Everybody is, is different and we can't expect every kid to, I guess, have a checklist that they can meet at the end of a year or the end of two years. So, you know, here in New South Wales, we do like a stage based curriculum. So we've got, you know, two years of working towards outcomes, but still expecting every student to be able to meet those is just unrealistic. So I guess I'd like to see, I guess, a more individualized curriculum approach where, you know, we have continuums that kids are are working towards, but it's not based on years. It's not based on ages or things like that. It's just purely about taking kids from where they are and moving them at their own pace of where they need to be. And yes, that's what differentiation is about. But when it comes to assessing and reporting, it's still, have they met this set of standards? Yes or no? Grade them based on what they're supposed to know at this point in time. And, you know, I just don't think it's a a fair system because there are kids that different things click at different times. You know, there are kids that, you know, they will get there. They will learn the knowledge and the skills that they they need for their their future and their life. But not everyone's going to get there at the same point in time. So I guess the second thing I'm moving away from, you know, content is also seeing more opportunity for it to be individualised. And rather than measuring kids based on a cohort or a year, measuring Mm -hmm. them against themselves i literally released an episode today saying something similar that i went to primary school i turned five the year that i was supposed to turn six well when everyone else turned six and i was pushed into that year because academically i was okay and i never had any problem with the content but socially i was incredibly immature and it did take me probably until high school to come into a place of understanding how a lot of the social dynamics worked because I was already a little bit behind the eight ball and things were kind of going on that I didn't quite understand. And so, especially in the nineties, when I went to school, it was so much about what skills does she have? Is she able to cope academically? And I think that we are embracing the importance of the social much more now. Are they able to make friends? Are they able to, you know, assert themselves in certain situations, all of that kind of thing. And I do love that. But as you say, the thing is, is that, there's probably a whole other gamut of things that we could be taking into into consideration as well as just academia, social ability, you know, that we're not even there yet. We're probably still trying to uncover that now. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's something we talk about all the time that, you know, students are, are on their own journey and us as teachers about differentiation is, is finding where they're at and enhancing that and moving them forward. But like I said, at the end of the day, we still have to come back to the same standard that everybody's meant to address. So it kind of devalues that whole idea of catering to individual needs because, yeah, yeah we want you to cater mm -hmm. to individual needs. But at the end of the day, if they haven't got to this point, that's not good enough. There's so many other things that are more important that are going to affect whether a student can or can't learn and are actually going to meet the checklist or the criteria, which is that whole, you know, Maslow before Bloom. There's so many other things that we have to think about in order to even get them to learn. And if those things, if those skills and those things haven't been developed, or like you said, they're lacking in that ability to interact socially then learning's going to be a really difficult task. Yes. And as teachers, we're not going to be able to get them to where they need to be. But here we are again, still in this, this same sort of mentality of the same, the same system. I know that there's, there's talk here in New South Wales about changing the curriculum. Okay. So having a bit more of a, it's still very sort of vague at the moment, but having different levels of curriculum. And so you might have in your classroom students that are on English level one and English level two not necessarily expected to get to a certain level by the end of a grade. It's more of a progression, which gives me hope. Mm -hmm. But honestly, there's so many other things that need to change in, in how we as teachers approach teaching and learning before I think we can pull something like that off. Mm. But here's hope that maybe we are moving in the right direction. I'm finding too that there's so many teachers wanting to take up some space and take up a platform to speak about education because often we haven't had an opportunity to be at the table. I found, you know, there's a lot of big government bodies. There are people in political positions that make, make, make calls, principals feedback to a degree. And I'd love to know your thought about this. The fact that the biggest issue I find is often the great educators move into leadership and then get kind of bogged down again, just like us in the classroom, get bogged down with the content, get bogged down again with all these government mandates and political mandates. And then that ties their hands again, even though they had all this vision to be able to make great change. And then over time, the removal of those educators from the actual classroom experience then shapes their perspective in a way that is again, not able to make the change that potentially they might've wanted. And I mean, that's my perspective from a teacher's from a classroom teacher, I'd love to hear what you think about that and whether or not that's actually true or whether I'm just completely misinterpreting the situation. No, you know what, you are absolutely right. And oh. you know, my role as an assistant principal, I still have the opportunity at my school to teach a class. So I still have a class of my own. And then obviously right. I have my, you know, administration, you know, and I guess leadership roles and things of responsibilities on top of that. But I love that I still get to be in the classroom making a difference. I know being in, you know, schools where it's, it's a huge weight on a principal or a deputy principal with just the amount of work they do that's not educational, yes. you know, education related when it comes to finance and property management and maintenance and budgets and all of these things that they do, which take up, let's be honest, most of their time. Mm. There's very little time to actually focus on teaching and learning. And I guess here in New South Wales, we're seeing, I guess, an increase in, I guess, what's called instructional leaders, which are leaders in schools and it's their job to help lead teaching and learning because principals and deputy principals, 
Yes, that's supposed to be their role, but they don't have the time to do it. I know personally, my principal would would love to be able to spend most of his time on teaching and learning, but the reality is with the amount of administration and like you said, policy and things like that, that continually change and continually adding more and more and more to the pile, his time is filled up with so many other things that, you know, when you become a principal, is that really why you become a principal? Because you want to get good at asset management or finances and budgets? Not really. Mm. You go into that role because you want to make a difference um, and you want to build a, a school environment that allows, you know, children to flourish and be all that they can be. But like you said, you have so much of your time taken up by other things that are not educational and it's, it's hard to find that balance. So I, I love the role I'm in because I still get to be face to face with students and learning and putting, trying to put things in practice and going, well, that didn't work. That's okay. You know, what can, what can I learn from this and doing research and, and hearing about things and going to PD, but still having the opportunity to come back and apply it and mm. see how it works. I love that. Yes, it's a huge responsibility and sometimes I don't know how I do it or why I do it. But at the end of the day, it's because I can make a difference, you know, and create a a learning environment for our students that's allowing them to, to have a wonderful, you know, experience at school. I think these conversations are important to have so that we can begin to have more empathy for the roles that everyone's playing in a school. Because I think oftentimes teachers go, oh, for goodness sake, can't they see what we're trying to do? Principals might be saying things like, oh, for goodness sake, can't you just get this done? Look at all that I've got on my plate. And the thing is that it's all relative, isn't it? And rather than playing the blame game, if we can come together as a community and try and support one another, that's ultimately the place that the most growth can happen and evolution can happen. But I do think sometimes we lose sight of what everyone else is trying to achieve and we focus so much on our own issue. Yeah, absolutely. And and like you said, it's often not till you step into that arena of, yeah. it's not something I really understood what my principal's job was until I became an assistant principal and started to be involved in those executive roles and meetings and things like that. They go, oh, wow, like you have to think about this stuff. It's, you know, you are blind to it until your eyes are open. And like I said, it wasn't until I stepped into that opportunity that I realised really what my principal did. And like you said, a lot of the time is is not focused on what the things that they want to to be focused on but it's part of their job do you think that that could be shifted do you think that we could redefine or there's a possibility to redefine the role of a principal to support them in as you say a lot of the administrative business elements of i mean a lot of principal i'm hopeful most principals didn't go to business school they would they would have gone through education and so the idea that a principal would miraculously have all of these skills, these business type skills seems crazy. They would have to be learning on the job and having some sort of support, but then all of the skills that they do have that they brought to the role, which is probably why they got the role are perhaps being underutilized. I'm wondering if there's an opportunity or what you think about that idea of redefining that role as a principal. Do you think it's done well at the moment? You know what, I don't think it's been done well in the past, but I'm hopeful, you know, here in New South Wales, we're starting to to see some good shifts forward and there's some changes in the last few years that have been positive, you know, with schools able to appoint business managers and things yeah. like that to help relieve some of that pressure and, you know, more flexible funding for what's called here in New South Wales principal support, which principals can use to get somebody in to help with some of those other 
jobs, which is positive. I think it's just a slow, very slow process, like anything to to shift roles and change an embedded and ingrained culture that's been in schools for a very long time. But I think we're slowly starting to see change. And like I said, new opportunities, I guess, where schools, like I said, are appointing other roles to help relieve some of that pressure off principals when obviously maybe, you know, they feel like they're letting the team down because they can't invest all of their their time. I was having a conversation with another leader from the US actually, and I was talking about how we're trained as teachers and how I have a bit of a bugbear with the fact that it's not practical enough. There's a lot of theory and very little practical placement. I'm not sure if New South Wales is similar, but it seems to be the way that it's done for most people that I've I've spoken to, like you get a maximum of maybe 14 weeks of training over a four year degree. And we were chatting about the idea of how great it would be to have trainee teachers coming in and being some of those support roles, whether that is redeveloping some curriculum, offering side programs that they're involved in, and then bringing that back to the universities and and actually having a real seat at the table and, and real conversations rather than hearing the educational research with no basis of, a, of application at all. Yeah, you're exactly right. And hey, let's be honest, you know, I went to uni for four years and mm-hmm. when I started teaching, I felt like I learned nothing and I, I started again. You know, I and know. I would love to see education move to, I guess, a bit more like an apprenticeship model yeah, because that is where you learn. Honestly, the most powerful learning experiences for me as a uni student were on prac in the classroom. I actually had the opportunity, I actually went to a private college and the reason I chose to go there to do my teaching degree was the amount of practical teaching experience that you got. So my local university, you know, you did two years of theory and at the end of your second year, you went on a prac for a couple of weeks, which was great. But I chose to go to a private college because we did semester one and then we did a two-week prac but because it was a private college linked to a private school we went to the school every week when we did our English subject we went and we observed our literacy groups and when we did PE for two terms we went to the school on Fridays and we coached sport for two weeks, uh, sorry, for two terms, that's what we did every Friday as part of our coursework was we went and we coached sport for two years and every six months at the end of every semester we were doing a prac. And for me, that was such a valuable experience, not just going on, I guess, more pracs and being in the classroom more, but actually having the opportunity while I was doing my subjects to go into schools, whether it was to observe or to have a go coaching sport and doing things like that which was you know great because that's where like you said that's where you learn but if we see I guess all universities sort of maybe take that opportunity to get students into classrooms more I think that's going to be a more powerful experience number one for the students uni students who are studying teaching because you know you can do two years of lectures and tutorials do a prac and go I don't want to do this. 100%. This is not what I thought it was. And here I am, I've wasted two years of my my life. You know, we did our first semester and did a prac and there were people that dropped out or people that changed to secondary or secondary people that changed to primary because it wasn't what they thought it was. And that was fine, but at least they hadn't wasted so much of their time doing something that wasn't really what they wanted to do. But like I said, the theory is great, but real teaching is that on your feet, when things change, when things don't go to plan, what do you do? Hmm. And it just seems to me like we're talking about the fact that we feel under-resourced and that we have so much to do and we don't have enough time. And 
And I mean, that is, that is literally the constant rhetoric of a teacher, isn't it? I don't have time. I've got to get this done. I'm running from here to there. They want me to do this. I want to do this. It's not all sort of panning out the way I want it to. And we have, as far as I'm concerned, this really untapped resource of these students that want to be educators that are sitting in a classroom listening to lectures when they could be actually, and it's going to make me sound terrible, but put to use potentially in a much more effective and productive way to support the industry that they want to be in. And whether that is a realisation that it's actually not what they want. I mean, that's better to know too, because I mean, teacher retention, that first five years, it's not great. It's not great. So what's going on? It's because they didn't know what they were getting themselves into prior to getting their own classroom. That's exactly right. And, you know, probably doesn't ever happen in secondary, but in primary school, you know, parent helpers are a huge part of what we do. And I spent my early years being like kindergarten year one and year two and parents you know I would have a parent in my room every day to read with kids or change home readers or do little things and that was amazing having someone there but imagine having someone there who's studying teaching has an educational background that can be there to do whatever it is that you need to do read with kids take kids withdraw them do something with them I actually, you know, have moved into years three to six the last few years. And and last year I had a parent, you never get parent helpers really from, you know, grade three upwards, but she was studying teaching and she said, you know, I'd love to come in one day a week and just help out for an hour. And that was huge, but be able to give her so much more because she's studying teaching. I'd say to her, take this group, do this thing, have a go. If it doesn't work, Mm -hmm. awesome. You've learned something. But she loved it. It was such a great experience for her. And then when she went on her prac, going, well, I've been in classrooms before. I've been there as a parent helper, but, you know, I've had some experience working Mm -hmm. in classrooms. So even the going on a prac isn't as daunting. So I think if we can look at changing, I guess, like you said, how universities set up their professional experience, because it's a benefit for them, but it's a benefit for for classrooms. Wouldn't it be great if every classroom could have an assistant? Yeah. But like, yeah. not just a random person, someone who's actually studying to be a teacher. That would be amazing. Huge resource that is untapped. It's going to lead me into my next question about what kind of advice or support would you like to give someone considering or training to be a teacher? Where to start? Hey, you know what? I know going into my first year and for me, I just thought I just had to have it all, know it all, be it all, do it all. I felt this pressure that I couldn't make a mistake or I couldn't um, not know things. And that's just, that's just not the reality. I put so much pressure on myself and I was, you know, on a, on a team of experienced teachers and I would just push myself to be at the same level as them, not realizing that some of those teachers have been teaching 30, 40 years. Like they were teaching when I was in kindergarten. And that's, you know, they've got years and years where they fine tune their skills and their knowledge and their understanding. So I guess my biggest piece of advice for graduate teachers is go easy on yourself. Acknowledge the fact that you are new to this and have a go try things and make mistakes because that's the best time to do it. Because everyone else is going, hey, this person's new, let's support them. Whereas I think the flip side is you don't want to think that you're new or you don't know what you're doing. But in reality, everyone is there to support you when you first out of uni to do the best job that you can. So acknowledge the fact that, you know, you don't know it all. Ask questions, seek advice, go into classrooms and check out what other people are doing. But just take the pressure off yourself to to have it all together. And I think, you know, I love Instagram and I love the Instagram family, but also it can be a bit dangerous because I know sometimes 
as teachers, we can look at what other people are doing and go, I'm just not as good as that person. Yeah. Or graduate teacher, you can look at that and think that's the standard you have to be. When, like you said, for some people that are on there, they've been teaching a long time. They've been refining their skills for years and years and years and you don't have to be at anybody else's level. You just have to acknowledge where you're at. And I think, you know, the biggest the biggest thing for you as a teacher is it's it's about knowing where you're at and constantly just trying to move forward at your own pace. And I think just focusing on one thing at a time because there are so many things in education, so many things about being a teacher just pick one thing that you feel like, you know, this is what I really want to work on and do that thing. Cause if you try and do everything, you'll do nothing well. Does that yes. make sense? It hundred percent makes sense. I love that you talk about the Instagram situation too, because I do see, I mean, there's incredible resources on there. I mean, when I first came on, I was like, what programs are they using? You know, this is amazing what they're putting together. And I've been teaching like you 13 years and I was really open to a lot of, the different things that were going on and the different formatting and the different kind of technology that people were using. I thought it was great, but I don't know how I would have felt in my very first year of teaching, seeing how prolific some people are with what they create, how much time and energy and whether or not that's a true reflection or what it just looks like on Instagram, it could be potentially very challenging that you think you have to keep up with that because teaching is a part of your life. It should not be your whole life. And we, I well, I've certainly lost that insight at times that it has felt all consuming. And if you are living online, watching constant like production lines of content and new rooms, like I was saying to you before recording, the whole pressure of a primary school room, I've not even thought about that, but that's humongous to consider all the different spaces, all the resources, how you're going to set up your wall. I mean, if you're seeing 400 other people doing something that you think, well, I could never do that. I mean, that's so demoralizing. And as much as you don't want it to be that, there certainly is that flip side to watching someone else's classroom through the lens that they're portraying online. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's that, yes, be inspired, but don't feel undermined or undervalued for who you are and what you do. And you know what? As a graduate teacher, I'm totally with you. I don't think I would have handled Instagram and that because I just would have felt like such a failure because like I said I already felt like that comparing myself to the people on my team Mm. let alone having these hundreds of thousands of people seeing what they're doing going oh my god I just I'm just not that good even now you know I've been teaching 13 years and I see what some people are doing go oh I'm just not that good a teacher because I can't do that and have to stop myself and go hang on no yeah I'm at a different stage in my life. I'm doing, I'm on my own journey. I would love to spend my time creating all of the resources that I dream up here, but I've got two kids, I've got a wife and they, like you said, teaching isn't my life. It's a tiny part of, of my life. There is more to my life than that. And I have to be okay with, you know, I've got all these resources and it might take me, you know, six months to put one of them together. And that's okay because my journey that I'm on is different to other people who they don't have kids or they've, you know, they've got the time to put their energy into that. And even now as an experienced educator, I still have to be mindful of what I'm scrolling and observing and comparing myself because it is a dangerous game. Love it. So much inspiration, but it's a fine line between being inspired, but then also, I guess, undervaluing yourself and what you're able to do. Because some things, some of the greatest things that we do as educators, you can't take a photograph of. Yeah, you're so right. You can't, you can't photograph it and put it on Instagram. 
but it's sometimes way more powerful than anything we could take a photo of and upload. I love that you've said that. I also would like to say that I'm sure that the people that we're comparing ourselves to that seem to have it all together would never want us to feel that either, to be perfectly fair. Absolutely. But it is, you know, it is that sort of dangerous thing. But I do love that as an experienced educator on Instagram a, a fair bit too, that you can see that flip side. And I'm hopeful that that's sort of gotten into anybody listening here, that it is a place of inspiration is certainly not a measuring stick in terms of how good a teacher you are. It is purely another resource for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that there's people at different stages because they create amazing things and I go, yes, awesome. I've been dreaming of that. Someone's done it. So now I'll download that and I'll use that yeah. um, because, you know, it's it's such a great resource and there's things that, you know, people put out there that I just never would have thought of mm. and they're amazing. And I go, yes, I can use that. And it's changed and transformed the way I've, I've done something and it my classroom is better off for it. So yes, definitely there are the people out there that, like I said, we compare ourselves to, would never want to make us feel bad, but that is just how we are as human beings. We are always our own worst critic. Yes. Absolutely. But, um, you know, thank goodness for the wealth of experiences and journeys that we have online and in Instagram that we can, you know, support one another and compliment one another at the end of the day. That's what it's all about. Absolutely. I'd also like to pick your brain as an AP too, because I do know that I have a fair few graduates listening. Let's talk about the job process, the resumes, all that kind of stuff. What kind of advice can you give to people? Because I certainly found, at least as a graduate, it's very, very hard to look good on paper because often the, the experience is quite similar. I mean, presumably if you're, if you're advertising a grad job, that's what you're looking for. But what kind of advice can you give for people in that kind of resume interview process? Yeah, you know what? It's super hard and I'll be honest and, you know, I didn't get a job as a graduate straight out of uni. I did casual and I did temp work and I applied for, I think, 17. The job I got was my 17th application in like a year and a half. So it's it's hard work and, tough. you know, you just have to keep at it. Um, I think the biggest thing is just giving it your best shot if you don't get through calling asking for feedback having those conversations with the people that are running the panels and asking hey what was it that you were looking for what advice do you have because it's so easy to just go oh, i didn't get it fine i'll move on but actually calling and asking for feedback and tips and tricks and sometimes you'll get really helpful stuff and sometimes you'll get stuff that you go oh no that that just doesn't really sit right with me because it's also to a very I know here in New South Wales every school's looking for something different so it can sometimes be very I guess subjective in the feedback that you get because certain schools are looking for something that other schools aren't so it's about you know I guess you being willing to take on feedback and sift through it and go what is helpful and what is maybe not something I want to take on board because it doesn't sit right with me or sit with who I am I guess the biggest piece of advice is practically I can give is to be I guess succinct and to the point because you know honest from being on panels you can have hundreds of applications Mm -hmm. and the longer they are the more tiring it is to read you know if you're number 96 out of 142 you've got to keep that in mind so you want to be succinct and to the point Another piece of advice is, you know, when you are writing something, you're claiming something, ask yourself the question, so what? 
what's the big deal about this point I'm writing? Because like you said, let's be honest, the criteria is, you know, set and there will probably be plenty of people writing the same thing as you, making the same claims as, as you because it's about best practice and we all do that. So when you say, hey, this is what I've done, what was the impact? What was the big deal? So often we just go, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this rather than telling a story, painting a picture of, you know, this is what I did. This was the impact. This was the outcome. Because at the end of the day, you really want to show not just that you can do a lot of things, but that the things that you do make an impact and are powerful and make a difference. So, you know, when, when you're writing applications, thinking about that, okay, I've written this, but what's the big deal? Why am I writing this? Backing it up with, you know, data, whether it's, you know, you know, you might have percentages of, you know, this percentage of kids improve this much, or it might just be something where there was a greater sense of belonging, because that is a powerful outcome. You can't measure it. But anecdotally, what did you notice from what you did? And I think if you can have less claims, but paint a bigger picture of the difference you made, that's more powerful than having a huge page full of, I did this, 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 this. What was your impact? What was the difference that you you made? And then if you can, it's really hard, but you need to show why you are the best fit for that job. So I always recommend to people, you know, do your research about the school that you're applying for. Go onto their website. Here in New South Wales, we have, you know, an annual school report and we have a three and four year school plan where we set targets that we're working towards. And I would always, at the end of my criteria claims, I would say, you know, at such and such a school, this is what I will do. And I might say, you know, I will implement this program as specified in the strategic direction number one, because it shows, you know what, I'm actually able to contribute to the direction that you're going. And it shows, I guess, a little bit more initiative, willing to figure out what is the school looking for and how can I contribute to that. Now, and then going to interview is the writing part's kind of, you know, the easy bit. When you get to interview, it's like, Oh, okay, now that rubber meets road and I am a waffler, like a major, <laughs> as you've probably noticed from this conversation. But I go into my interview with three three things in my head. So number one, whatever questions I ask, I kind of frame my response in three ways. So first of all, when they ask question, I'll start with an I believe statement. So sort of, I guess, like a bit of a philosophical, you know, what I believe about that thing, whether it's differentiation or well-being, you know, I believe you know, this, you know, philosophy behind it, I have. And that's when I'll sort of give some examples. This is what I've done. Like I said, I'll use that method where I'll tell the story of, you know, this was the situation and this is what I went about doing and these were my actions and this was my results and the impact. And then I'll finish with I will, which is if I got the position here at this school, these are the things I'd do. I'd implement this program or I'd put my hand up to be part of this team and it just helps me focus on answering the question and not getting off track, if that makes sense. Because I know, okay, this question, I believe, I have, I will. Because you've got a time limit as well. Yeah. So you've got to say it all, but you've got to do it in 30 minutes or whatever it is. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. I've not heard that before, but I think I'm going to put that in the show notes. I believe, I have, and I will. That's great advice. That's my sort of framework for answering questions in the interview, but also even when I write my application, you know, I don't know what it's like in every state, but here in New South Wales, we've got really strict uh, guidelines now, you know, like so a half page per criteria, that's not a lot of space. So it's about choosing your statements wisely, I guess, and picking your best things. 
because it used to be free for all. And I remember when I did my first application for my teaching job, my first permanent job, it was like 12 pages. Mm. And I think sometimes people think that the more (laughs) you can write, the better your application. And it's definitely not the case. And I think that too, the anecdotal evidence and the showing of what's actually been achieved can be so much better than just a dot point list of all of the PDs you've been to. Because I think that again, as grads, you think, well, I don't have a lot to say. I haven't done a lot. I haven't gone to all the PD and I can't have all of those professional developments ticked off my list. But as you say, the impact you've made is something that will help you stand out because teaching is about humanity and heart more than anything, I think if you can show that in your application through the impact that you've made to an individual, to a group, to a school. Yeah. I think you're right. That's the way to stand out, isn't it? Definitely. And number one, you know, do your research about what your state you know, guidelines and requirements are and stick to them because you can put all this time into writing this amazing thing. But if it doesn't meet the guidelines, mm. they won't even look at it. Yes. The other thing I wanted to ask. Pay you attention know, on to margins. Oh, margins. What's, what, what do they say about margins? So in New South Wales. So in New South Wales, we're not allowed to shift the margins from, if you open a Word document, the margin size, that's there, which is 2.5 centimetres. You are not allowed to change it. You know, you can't go less than size 10 font. They're just very particular about, like you said, people doing lots of things to, I guess, get more space and write more. So they've really brought in really strict guidelines now about what's expected in the layout. And like I said, half a page per criteria and schools do it differently. But, you know, there are schools out there that they will print it, fold it in half. And if it goes over that fold line, they might not read it because it's that specific now of half a page per criteria so you have to be just so aware because you might write something amazing but if you've you know haven't met one of those guidelines and that's the reason that it doesn't get read or you don't get through to interview how disappointing so just research what your current guidelines are because they change and you don't want to miss out on an opportunity for something silly like a margin That's really good advice. The other thing I wanted to ask you about too, on your Instagram, we were having a chat earlier about your passion around flexible learning spaces. I have had Glenn and Jess on, so their episode was growing above the radar and they were as grad secondary teachers thrust into a situation with open learning spaces that didn't go particularly well. And I obviously you're really excited about it. You see the positive in it. So I love the opportunity to tell the flip side of the benefits of more flexible learning spaces rather than kind of leave that hanging on a negative in that episode. Yeah. You know what? I, number one, I'll I'll put it out there to go back to teaching on my own in a room by myself. I would be really disappointed. Uh, This is the start of my fifth year being in, you know, flexible collaborative spaces and it has been a game changer for me, but I'll be honest in saying I came into it having no experience. So all of my previous experiences at other schools before the school I'm at now were just, you know, single classroom, traditional, no co-teaching or anything like that. And I came It's part of the reason why I applied to be at the school I was at because they were sort of the first school in our region to have these purpose-built spaces. And I thought, I want to do something I've never done before. What a great opportunity to be doing something that's new and different. But I didn't have any PD, didn't have any experience, literally thrown in the deep end. I got here, started my first day at this school was the first day the rooms opened. And I was in a classroom sharing with someone I'd never met before. We'd never taught, 
in a flexible learning space before and we made a million and one mistakes. But that I think was the best professional learning I've ever had because at the end of the day, we would sit down and go, what didn't work? What will we do different? That constant reflection and critique of, you know, not to get yourself down, but to be honest about what didn't work? What can we do better? I'll be fortunate in saying, you know, I've always been put in teams with people that we're very much on the same page when it comes to philosophy, when it comes to behavior management and well-being and teaching practice. You know, I know that's definitely not to be overlooked. I think when we first went into these spaces, I fluked it with being teed with somebody who we got along so well and we gelled really well in regards to, like I said, our philosophies and our thoughts about teaching. But when we sort of matched teams up, we sort of went for a skills approach. Like this person's really strong in creative arts. This person's really strong in maths. Let's put them together because their skills complement each other. But on the things that really matter, like philosophy and their beliefs about teaching and learning, they clashed and it just didn't work. And for us, that was a chance for us as, I guess, the leadership, um, the executive team of the school to stop and think and go, oh, hey, what really is the most important thing? And I think it really is about creating teams where you have people that are on the same page. And we've done a lot of work in the last four years to sort of bring a clear culture around teaching and learning to our school through, you know, we've done a lot of work around visible learning and that is across the school now. So I think all of our teams work because we've created a culture about what we want teaching and learning to look like in our school. So we have people where we can change our teams a lot now, but the teams seem to work because we've got a good culture and we've laid a lot of groundwork around what we want teaching and learning to look like. And we're matching people that we think, yeah, hey, yes, their skills are complementary, but will they get along? Because if you're not going to get along with the person, it's not going to work. It's going to be two separate classes working in a, in a shared room. And that's not really what flexible collaborative learning is about. It's not about two separate classes sharing a room. It's about being intertwined. And there are times when we do things all together. And there are times when the kids move between the two teachers or the three teachers, you know, last year I was in a space with three teachers and three classes and that was a whole nother dynamic to manage and work out how to make it work. But I think, like I said, we've gone through a lot of reflection and a lot of fine tuning of our practice, but also tweaking it to suit our student last year had a, I guess a picture in ahead of how we wanted our room to operate and how we wanted to structure groups and it just didn't work for that cohort of kids so then we had to stop and go what's going to work better to suit these students and yes it's called a, a flexible learning space we need to be flexible in our in our approaches and we need to be willing to change things number one to suit the teachers that we're working with but to suit the students that we're working with but honestly like I said I would hate to go back to teaching alone mm. I would really honestly miss it but like I said we've learned a lot of lessons over the last four years going into our fifth year now about how to set up the rooms and the teams for success because it hasn't always been a positive experience. It's interesting we had a huge influx of funding based around in Victoria, based around creating these flexible learning spaces. And if you could put in a proposal to say that you were going to teach this way, you would get funding by the government to build these big spaces. The biggest thing that I found in secondary, and I can't speak for primary, was that obviously the more money, the more opportunity, the more spaces you can create. So a lot of people put their hands up for these grants, built these big spaces, but 
the thought and the effort hadn't gone into the curriculum that would be going into those spaces. And I think that that often was part of the reason that it would fall over because, you know, there'd be in these big, great spaces and you just have two teachers teaching something that could be done in one space or you were trying to get 70 kids to listen to one teacher while the other teacher walked around. And so I'm wondering what's been your experience around how to develop curriculum and how to utilise those spaces as effectively as possible? Yes, yeah, so a good question because you preempted the next thing I was going to say. So shall we just go with my answer to that? Please. Yeah. So first thing you have to think about is the pedagogy, because like you said, you can have the furniture, you can have a great layout, but if your pedagogy and the way you want to set up teaching and learning doesn't match that, it's pointless. And I always say to people before they pick furniture, before they think about a room layout, you really need to sit down and think about how do I want to teach in this space? Because that should drive your layout, your furniture selection. And like you said, a lot of people just dive into it and go, we just want all this cool, crazy furniture. And then it doesn't work because their teaching approach doesn't suit what they've created. And it's, yes. we need to actually see the, the furniture and the layout secondary to what's the most important thing, which is about the teaching and learning. And so you need to have those, I have to have a plan around what's learning going to look like and then what's the space I'm going to create to suit that. Because like you said, otherwise you may as well just be in, in your room as, as a single, you know, solo teacher and just do what it is that you want to do. It's more powerful to stop and really think about the teaching and the pedagogy and the practice before you you open the catalogue and you get, because there are so many great pieces of furniture and there are so many great pieces of furniture that I've tried and it hasn't worked and I've thrown it out because number one, it didn't suit the teaching or it just didn't suit the kids that I had. There have been times when I've had a piece of furniture, I've had a set up and then I've actually had to take it away because it just didn't suit that particular group of students. You know, we needed to do, I guess, a bit more groundwork in, in teaching them how to work in that environment first. So, the biggest thing to think about, you know, is what do I want teaching and learning to look like? Um, if I am teaching with somebody, having those conversations about how are we going to teach? Is it is like you said, having 60 kids and one teacher out the front really going to work? Is it the best way of, of doing it? Or do we need to have a, a different approach? And we've had, you know, in the four years I've had, I've done a different, I guess, model for reading groups and maths every year because it's been about the person I'm working with, it's been about the cohort, the age group, their their level of experience and skills. You know, I think as a school now, the first year was really hard because we had all of these kids going into these new rooms that they'd never experienced before and it was really hard mm -hmm. where in our form now. And so the kids that will be coming into the upper years have been doing this type of learning since kindergarten year one, you know. So the kids that I will have this year in year five I've actually taught them every year since year one. So it's been a journey. But by this point in time, they're learning how to learn in this environment. And so that sometimes I think too, we, we go, oh, it didn't work. We gave it six months or a year and it didn't work. But you're talking about kids who have grown up in one style of teaching, one type of education system or environment, and you're throwing them into something completely different and wondering why it doesn't work because is that how we teach kids to swim? You know, I've got a six-year-old and I didn't just throw my daughter in the pool and go figure it out. You know, she's been going to swimming lessons yeah. and learning how to swim. Yeah. And it's the same with 
kind of spaces it's it's then thinking about okay how am I going to ease if the kids have never done this how am I going to ease them into it it's sort of you know a bit of a an approach where you know there's a lot of guidance at the start there's a lot of teaching how to learn in this environment and slowly pulling that back to the point where there's a lot of things we don't have to cover now because like I said fourth year in the kids know the rules around spaces and the layout and things like that the other benefit I've had is like I said I've had this one particular cohort of kids for five years now either as as a classroom teacher I've been their assistant principal so there's a lot of things around teaching and learning in our classrooms that they just get because it's been consistent for that amount of time. I think sometimes you're right as educators we need to be more resilient and I think that rather than shifting the goal it can be easier to just revert back to something that is known and I think that's ultimately the problem with the education system in general is that we have a system that works to a degree that we understand and so taking those big risks as you say they take time they take reflection they take involvement they take often the goal at the start will not be the end point that you get to, but you have to be willing and okay to have those hard conversations of, look, we had this really great plan. This is what we purchased. This is how we set it up. It's not working rather than reverting back to an antiquated potentially system. Let's look at what else we could do. Let's be brave again. Let's try another risk. Let's take, yep. you know, let's be braver. I think that, but there needs to be, as we said, the time thing is big, the opportunity for reflection, for evaluation. If you don't have that time and that sort of space to have those big conversations, I guess the change you wanted to make can get lost somewhere in translation. Yeah. Yep. And education, it's such a shame, but it's so results driven now. And yes. it's, it's very much data driven in a sense of we want to see this result by this point in time. And sometimes impact takes years. You know, we've been doing a, a project at our school with visible learning and that was a three year project. And, you know, they said to us, don't expect to see an impact until your third year. And it's so easy to do something, go, oh, it didn't work. Let's not do that anymore. You know, it didn't end up the way I thought or the way I wanted it to work. I didn't get the result I wanted in a term or a semester or even in a year. But some of these things, like you said, they take time. We have to be willing to stick with it, mm. tweak it. Like you said, fine tune it and go, yep, okay, maybe my goal that I had was just too big. Mm. I didn't realise that there's all these other little goals that I have to conquer first to get there. And it might take longer than expected. But we're often, because we want to, we're being driven by results, we just want to get there really quick. We just want to find that silver bullet, but there are no silver bullets. I wonder too, because as you say, every year you've revised and you've reevaluated, and, you know, how you've used the space one year will be different with the different kids. Do you find that there are any educators that are resistant to that? Like, I've done it this way. I like it this way. Can we keep it this way? Or is everyone pretty happy to kind of move with how it is the most beneficial for the students in the room? Everybody is different and there are definitely teachers that find their their style and they just go with that because it works mm -hmm. but you know it's just there's different styles and different people have their own way of doing things it's about I guess finding the balance between you know sticking with something because it's I guess important and not I guess, lowering your expectation or understanding that, yes, they might not get it, but we're going to stick with it because the impact later is going to be more important. But there is that time where there are definitely times where you hear stuff go, 
this really isn't working and mm-hmm. I really do need to do something about, you know, need to make an adjustment. So, but there's definitely, you know, teachers and we're all, I'm the same. There are things that I'm reluctant to change because, oh, this, I've got to do something different. Yeah. Let's be honest. This has worked. I can't change this. And I ask because I know that that's the reality. I know that there's a lot of different personalities in teaching and to be fair, majority of teachers like to have an element of control, whether that's over their room, over their resources, over how their day looks. I think we all love that a little bit. That's sort of intrinsic, I think, in being a teacher. So I can understand why there would be teachers, and potentially I would be one. I'm not, I don't work in a flexible learning space, you know. So as it's not a criticism, it's more just I'm sure that that's a reality that you must face. Yeah, definitely is the reality you face of what am I sticking with simply because I just don't want to change Mm. or what am I sticking with because it's just, it's really important. And sometimes the benefit of it is, is having that other person who's outside of your perspective and having that input, because sometimes they'll go, you know, should we really be doing this? And I might just want to keep doing it because it's the way I've always done it, but having their perspective is important. So I've kind of learnt to, I guess, hold my ideas lightly in the sense of, I don't know it all. I don't have all the answers. Um, and there are people with other ideas and other perspectives that might work better than mine. And that, it's part of the whole, you know, being in a collaborative environment. But there are definitely, like you said, there would be situations out there with people who they just do it because that's all how they've always done it. And that's fine too. You know, we are all different. And that's the beauty of, you know, the teaching profession is, you know, you've got a broad range of knowledge and skills and experience that we can all learn from. But like, I'll be honest, I'm biggest control freak. <laughs> Why did I become a teacher? Because I like telling people what to do. <laughs> You would not be alone, Aaron. I'm sure there's plenty of us out there. I do love because I like controlling things. Yeah, well, and you know, you do have as a teacher the ultimate control of your day. You know, you can decide how it plays out to a degree. There is obviously the whole unknown of students in your room, but you can decide how you want to teach particular information. But the thing with that, I would say too, is if there's too much ego in your teaching and it becomes too much about you and how you want to structure your day and what you want to do, then you just miss out on the opportunities that the kids can give you. And I think I've had so many conversations too about, I will have a preferred way that I would like to disseminate information. But again, as you say, like if that's not landing, it's my responsibility to then shift my approach and my practice. And I think that you can only really do that if you're willing to give yourself the grace and take the ego out of it and go, what's best for the students rather than what's, what do I want to do? Yeah, that's right. And definitely that is a fundamental in these kind of teaching environments, you know, is there is really no place for ego because it's a shared space. Otherwise, like you said, it becomes a dynamic of two separate classes in one room but it's really no different to just being in your own room. And, you know, there are people that I guess this kind of environment suits and there are people that it doesn't and that's fine. You know, we always give our, our staff the opportunity to, to say, do you want to teach in a combined space or do you want to teach in a room on your own? And if you don't want to teach in a combined space, that's cool. You don't have to, there's no pressure understand that different people have their own style and their own way of doing things and that's fine there's no judgment but yeah definitely in these shared environments it's it really does have to come down to like you said what's best for the kids what's best for the team what's going to work for everybody and often it's it's not my ideas but I find for me I'll be honest in saying because I am the assistant principal 
I need to be more mindful that people aren't just going with my ideas because I'm the assistant principal. Does that make sense? hundred percent it does. Yeah. It can often go, oh, well, we'll just do what Aaron wants because he's the supervisor or he's the assistant principal. So, you know, that's something that I am mindful of making sure that it's not just my way because of my position, if that makes sense. Yeah. And often go, not what's your idea? Let's do it your way. You know, let's, you know, how do you want to make this work? Because I think it definitely for others could be more intimidating having to share a space with your supervisor, if that makes sense. It definitely does. Other than the flexible learning spaces, what other things are you really, really passionate about as an educator? I would say the other thing I'm most passionate about is visible visible learning. So that's like you know something that we've been doing as a school for three years now, going into our fourth year. And it has really the professional learning that I've done and we've as a school done around that has changed the way I teach. You know, I'm much more explicit in how I teach, but in my feedback to students and Hattie's research, you know, there's lots of debate around Hattie and his research, but at the end of the day, it's about looking at what are the things that have the most impact. You know, everything that we do has a positive impact, but I think Hattie's mission is really about defining what are the things that have the most Mm -hmm. impact and maximizing those things. So we've been for three years now, slowly, you know, developing our visible learning practices. And, you know, I know as an educator, like I said, it has changed the way I give feedback to my students, both verbally and written. It's changed the way I set up and structure my lessons. It's changed the way I am making kids and students more accountable for their learning um, and making them drivers of their own learning where I think before I was very much just you sit and listen I tell you what you need to know and that's it whereas now there is a lot more what do you think you need to to do next what's your next step because if we can empower students to be their own teacher or be each other's teachers because there's one of me and 30 of them but if we can give students the knowledge and skills to help drive their own learning and their the learning of their peers they're actually more benefit in that because we're equipping them rather than it being solely reliant on me to be the person that pushes learning forward. So, you know, it's something that I'm hugely passionate about, but um, was kind of blissfully unaware of until we started this visible learning journey as a school. I agree. I think too that I've seen so many educators and I was probably one at one point where you tick the box and you're like, okay, I've done that. I've covered that. Great. I'll move on to my next part of whatever content I want to deliver. And then you would go to some kind of assessment, whether it was a test or whatever, and they couldn't tell you. And it was three weeks before because you thought, oh, I've ticked that off. I'm okay now. And so then when it comes to the feedback of as a test or or some sort of assessment, and they can't actually tell you what you believe you've told them or what you believe. And then there's this real sense of, well, I don't know what's going on. They just don't listen to me. And so there's a real disconnect between what you think you've done and what the kids have learned and it's their fault because you did it. And I've, I've seen these conversations so many times. Well, I did it. You know, it's not my fault that they weren't listening. And I think that that needs to shift because three weeks ago, you don't know what was going on. You don't know whether or not you did actually get it through. And if you're not getting that feedback quickly and timely from the students, and I know students expect quick time, timely feedback from teachers too, but if you're not getting that, from your students, how do you know if you actually taught it? Yeah, you, you said it. That's a different, it's not the same thing. You said it or you've written it on the board or you've given them a sheet. It's not the same thing as actually teaching your student how to understand something. 
And so, as you say, I think that again, well, ego is huge though, I would say, because I think that if you're too in your ego, you're too willing to place blame on someone else rather than take responsibility. And I think that, yeah, all of this thing is that that timely feedback from students is actually very, very important. Yeah. And, and like you said, you know, I, I'm often the giver of feedback, but like you said, being open to getting feedback on my teaching from my students, you know, and actually reflecting on that, giving students the opportunity and asking, you know, how, how did we go today? You know, we do this sort of traffic light system in our class with, you know, what do you think of the lesson or how do we go with this lesson? And if we get a lot of kids that are, you know, a red traffic light, I could just go, like you said, oh, well, they just, you know, they're just not smart enough. They don't get it. Mm. But that's important for me to go, why are all these kids red? Was I not clear enough? Like, did I, did it not go well because of something that I did rather than just move on next thing without ever asking that question, but actually stopping and thinking about that and going, oh, there was a lot of red what should I do differently? You know, and that's been really powerful for me as a teacher, but also for my students as well, to be honest, to create this environment now where we can be honest without fear of judgment or upsetting me if you don't get something, not being ashamed to go, you know what, I don't get this. Mm -hmm. But I think coming back to our earlier conversation, that hasn't happened by fluke relationship. Absolutely, relationships. That's a result where we can have those honest conversations where kids will go, I'm read they're not embarrassed to say, I didn't get it. And you know what? Are the kids going, hey, that person's a red, I'm a green. Maybe I can go and help them rather than going, oh, you don't get it. But seeing these powerful things happen because they go, well, that kid needs help and I get this. Why don't I help them? Or just the little pats on the back like, it's all right, we'll try again tomorrow to their buddies or whatever like there is a lot of bad press around that sort of I guess thing where kids can openly discuss well I'm not very good at this there's a lot of talk about shaming and you know it's embarrassing like I don't know what displays up with comparing kids but there are times where like I said kids will acknowledge hey I'm a red and they obviously number one feel safe to say that because there's no judgment. Mm. We haven't created mm. this place where we're competing, but like I said, we have created an environment where kids who are really quite skilled will go, well, that's okay. how about I work with them or how can I help them? And I think you're right. So, that idea of creating the environment in which you can then bring in this kind of learning or feedback is important without the environment, without the safety and the comfort and the support that could potentially be quite a difficult situation for a lot of students and perhaps why there is some like you said it's one of those things that yes sorry you go yeah and like we were saying before that's so important but it's not something we can put on a lesson plan it's not something we can document but it's the most crucial thing of all because you know I can I can put up a thing on Instagram about this traffic light system that we we use and someone might go I'm going to use that but like I said if they haven't done the pre-work to create that environment it's not necessarily going to work but that groundwork of building those relationships you can't document that you can't put it on a lesson plan you can't necessarily prove it in a way but without it the other stuff doesn't work yeah What are the big skills you think that students need to have by the end of primary school to support them, either going into high school or just in life in general? What are the big skills? Where to start, hey? (laughs) You know, I think we as as a school, we've sort of 
focus we focus on three three sort of particular skills that we teach or we aim to instill in our kids from k to six and it was through discussion about what do we think is really important for learning so the things that at our school we focus on we focus on critical thinkers so that ability to reflect i guess reflect personally ourselves but reflect on the information we're being given not just taking things for face value but actually asking questions and and critiquing things so we you know we want kids to be critical in a sense of asking questions not just accepting everything that's that's after not i guess necessarily challenging or being difficult in that sense but not just being willing to just accept whatever's thrown at them and also reflect on themselves and be critical of where they're at and what their next steps are. The other thing is being creative. So encouraging kids to be able to problem solve and generate ideas and, you know, think outside the box and look for multiple solutions to things because often I know myself included, we just teach one way to get from point A to point B. This is the way, this is how you do it. When there are often many different paths to take to an answer and the quickest way is not necessarily the best way so that's another one that we particularly try and instill in our kids and the last one is collaborative Um, so we teach our kids to be collaborative which is hugely important particularly number one for the environment that we're in but I think looking at society and where the world is heading we're preparing kids to be collaborative in their futures and willing to be respectful and understand and accept people's ideas that are different to theirs they're not necessarily wrong but it's okay to have differences of opinions and differing ideas and, you know, being able to listen and accommodate those ideas and also not always getting your own way because we all know that's not how the world works. You don't always get what you want. So, you know, for us and for me in particular, you know, there are three really important things that I think are life skills, but also so important to learning coming from early years kids are very me, 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 and creating an environment where kids can understand that the world is bigger than their own perspective and their own point of view is a powerful thing. And I think, you know, if we can do that and instill that in kids from a young age, we're going to have a society that is, you know, a lot more open, a lot more kind, a lot more caring, you know, a lot more supportive and compassionate because we understand that, you know, I have a perspective, but so does lots of other people. Lots of other people have their own experiences. I guess they're the skills that I think I think are super important to be instilling in kids no matter what age they are because they're things that we need. Yeah. I'm also interested. I was chatting to a friend of mine the other day who was talking about how she, and she's a mother of two boys, how she's so desperate to see more males in the profession. What has your experience been like as a male in the profession? What would you like to tell other males that potentially are considering or in the education profession? Because it has seen been seen societally for a long time to be more of a female driven industry. Yeah. It's, it's funny, you know, because coming into teaching definitely felt like I guess a minority because there aren't a lot of males in in primary teaching but since coming into leadership it's actually the flip side when you get into leadership there's a lot more male people like men in leadership positions so it's funny because I've gone from this one this one side of really feeling like I was I guess a minority but now switching to leadership and going hey the majority of people that I interact with, there's, there's just seems to be a lot more um, males in leadership positions. Don't know why. 
not necessarily making a statement there, but it's just my observation of how things have panned out. It's funny because it's it's kind of a, a great privilege because I know the power of a positive male influence. I know the power and that that had on me as a student. The male teachers I had in my life really made a huge impact on me. So it's a, it's a great privilege. But in saying that, there's also the other side of it where sometimes I feel a lot of pressure because you get parents that go, oh, they just need to have a male teacher. Oh, they're just going to have the best year because they've got a male teacher. And then the flip side is, well, there's all this pressure on me because I'm the male teacher. I just have to make it the best that it can be or everything's riding on me because, oh, they just needed a male teacher. Do you know what I mean? If that makes yeah, I sense. I do, I do, yeah, of course. So yeah. then it's sometimes in... I guess some people can think the silver bullet is, oh, well, if I have a male teacher, everything will be perfect and it'll all be fine and dandy. And it's not necessarily the truth. There are definitely students who haven't got along with me because I'm very, I guess I have high expectations and clear boundaries and they think I'm strict. But in saying that too, as a male teacher, I'll be honest about who I am as a, as a person. There's kind of like a persona about what a male teacher needs to be and you have to be sporty. I am not sporty. Okay, like at that's all costs. I will avoid teaching sport. It is not my forte and it is not really something I enjoy. But do you know what I mean? Like this kind of a persona of what a male teacher should be in a school. Mm-hmm. And that's been something for me on my own journey of not feeling like I have to fit a persona of what a male teacher should be. And, and I guess sometimes too, growing up, I always saw the male teacher as being very like strict very I guess assertive it's not my style like I'm very quiet reserved but honestly when I first came into it I did kind of feel a pressure if I had to fit a certain stereotype a personality yeah a stereotype of what a male teacher has to be and I tried to be something I wasn't for a very long time and even you know I'll be honest growing up as a kid I felt like that I grew up I've got two sisters so I I guess there's a lot of things about me from growing up in an environment where it was very female influenced that have shaped my personality. And as a, as a teenager, I felt different because I wasn't sporty. I never felt like I fitted in with, with boys. And there was always this pressure of feeling different and coming into teaching. And I sort of felt a bit the same, but I actually had a, my very first principal was, I guess, very much similar in his style to me and was really strongly encouraging me you don't need to change who you are like who you are and what you're about and your gentle approach and your kindness is actually valued don't feel like you have to be something else if that makes sense but yeah that's that's my journey as being a male in education like I said it's it's a huge privilege I know that from my own experience um, of the difference, you know, a positive male influence can make in someone's life, but pressure to sometimes to feel like I've got to make it the best because, you know, the male teacher thing is the thing that every child needs. Yeah. And I'm hopeful that we've been able to dismantle that a little bit. I actually talk in my very first episode about, you know, as women, we're so quick to, talk about especially at the moment we've had a big fight you know as females over the over the years to demand equality and to take up some space and all of that kind of thing and and I'm so proud of us as women to get to the place that we are but the flip side is that there is still a box in which men are placed and I think that we're not as 
willing to talk about that because there is an assumed privilege that goes with being a male, especially a white male. However, there is also a box that you have to fit in. And as you say, that idea of, well, if I'm male and masculine, then this is, then there's X, Y, Z that that means in society. And if I'm not that, then what does that make me? And I think that without realizing it, Aaron, perhaps being that soft, gentle, you know, more reserved man in the world then allows others to see that that's just as important and that the stereotype isn't actually real. It is just that, a generalization that we see in movies and media and et cetera. And so by being yourself, I'm hopeful that there are boys and even girls in your class that can say, well, my brother's allowed to be like that now, or, you know, I'm allowed to be that now. And just having that more wide scale acceptance that being male or female actually doesn't define your personality at all. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, and that's, I guess, my hope too. I guess in a way it's part of the reason why I'm very honest about who I am and what I like and I don't like because I want the students in my class, like I said, to realise that it's okay for for boys to be a certain way and it's okay for girls to be a certain way and that's fine. And, you know, it's funny because I'm, I'm sharing this space this year with another male and we are so different in our personalities. We are so opposite, but I think that's going to be a great dynamic for our classroom for students to see these two males who are very different in their personalities and what they like and what they're into and how they approach things. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Do you know what I mean? To work with another male who is actually super, super different to me. Yeah. And look, I will say too, I've always looked at things from the female lens. Obviously I was one of, uh, one of two girls. I've got a sister and it really wasn't until having a son that I had to take a step back and go, I really need to invest in understanding the world that a male inhabits because it's not the world that I inhabited or inhabit and there are just as, and as much as I'm fixated on for girls you know body image and there's so many things that I can see are detrimental for women but I do think that we need to be kinder to our boys too yeah and is that kind of the flip side for you you've got two girls haven't you as a parent yes yeah so, so is that kind two, of the flip side for you or how has that changed your perception on everything well it's Number one, I felt very comfortable when we had our first daughter, Serenity. I felt really like I, I know how to do girls. I've got two sisters. Um, and then when we had our second daughter, Aria, it was the same. I, th I think I really would have struggled if we'd had a son because for me, I grew up with two sisters and I guess how I would describe myself, I'm not a stereotypical boy, mm -hmm. if that you know fair to say so I actually was nervous about the idea of having a son but in saying that you know it's like you said understanding having two two daughters is a world where like I want to encourage them to not be limited by their gender or not be stereotyped because they're a girl actually creating room for for them to, you know, to do whatever it is they want to do and have a personality that's, and passions and likes and dislikes that aren't driven by gender stereotypes. And kind of in a way, sometimes, you know, our younger daughter, Aria, someone said, oh, what a cute little boy. And I was like, well, she's actually a girl. She's just wearing shorts and a T-shirt. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. creating a place where I guess for them, like gender's not really 
an issue or not creating, I guess, I, I guess I feel more passionate about having a daughter because I feel like sometimes that's more driven for girls to be a certain way or that kind of thing. You know, I know having sisters and sort of seeing that journey for them of always them feeling like they, they couldn't do certain things or they had to be a certain way is sort of what making me as a parent be more aware of creating an environment where those things aren't talked about or those things don't matter. Yeah. If that makes sense. It makes um, complete sense. Because yeah. I, I did have two sisters who growing up in a different time were very much always like, oh, well, I've got to do this because I'm a girl or, you know, my sisters are also quite a bit older than me. So they're one's eight years older than me and one's nine and a half years older than me. So, you know, from a young age saw, I guess, gender sort of really affect them in their teen years and growing up and understanding that they couldn't and my parents you know it's a bit old school you can't do that because you're a girl or you have to do this because you're a girl Aaron can do this because he's a boy but as a parent I don't want to create that sort of space but as a teacher in my classroom being more aware of that because I'm a parent how that translates into teaching because I'm a parent where there's things that maybe I wouldn't have seen before, if that makes sense. Yeah, completely. We have talked about some big lessons, I feel, but is there anything else you would like to add about lessons you have learnt in life up until this point? Oh, gosh. That's a big question, Laura. (laughs) Lessons that I've learnt in life. Gosh. I feel like this conversation has been very deep. Right. I'm I'm terrible Um, like that. I do (laughs) apologise. You know, I think um, we've just touched on it, but one of the biggest lessons for me as a person, not necessarily, I guess it has its professional ramifications, but is really being true to yourself as an educator, but as a, as a person not feeling the pressure to, to be something that you're not, because I've tried that. I've tried to pretend to be a certain type of person or a certain type of teacher, um, and it just hasn't worked for me. And as, a, as an educator, spending the time to, you know, to really think about who am I, what am I about, and sticking to that, you know, that was something that I was really encouraged early on by my principal was who is who is Aaron Johnston as a teacher? What do you believe? What are the fundamental things that you believe that will not change? Like we're not talking, you know, necessarily practice because best practice always changes. Yes. But underneath all of that, fundamentally, what is at the core of you that is non-negotiable that will always will always be there because that's important. There's going to be times in your life as a, as a human being and as an educator, we have to make tough decisions and you're going to be asked to do things, but don't compromise who you are or what you believe because it won't work. You'll be miserable if you do. You know, one thing I was asked to to do by my principal and coming into leadership, it was, you know, something that we did recently at a course was, you know, what are the, what are your three core values as an educator you know and even as a human being what are your three core values that are non-negotiable no matter what it'll always boil down to these these things that are non-negotiables you know and so for me you know as an educator I'm able to define those and articulate what they are and yes the method might change but I'm not going to steer away from these core values of who I am because that makes me who I who I am as an educator, but as a person, you know, and if you are asked to compromise on those things, then, you know, you have to reflect on, is this the right place for you? 
Mm. And what are your three core values, Aaron? I want to know. <laughs> so excellence in so my professional ones. These are my professional yeah. ones. So excellence in teaching and learning. So no matter what I do, it'll always be about what's best for students. Yep. So quality relationships. Yeah. It's the other one. So at the end of the day, the people that I interact with, my students, my teachers, relationships are at the core of what I'm all about. It all comes down to relationship first and everything else is secondary to that. And the third thing is partnership. So understanding, I guess, having that sense of, like we talked about before, I don't know it all. I don't have all the answers, but being able to work, you know, with others, with colleagues, with parents, with outside agencies, but booking up partnering with, you know, with others to make sure that it's not just me in my way or it's not just a silo, but we're, we've got a team approach. So having a, a dynamic in who I am as a professional that is about creating connections and partnerships that are going to benefit the whole school community. So they're sort of my my three things that I've defined as who I am and what I'm about as a as an educator. That's a great exercise. I would encourage anybody that's listening to this to do that, whether it's professionally or personally, to, to define and to identify those three core values that at the end of the day, if they are compromised, it's worth considering whether or not that role or that situation is right for you. Yeah. And it's a big, it's a big thing to, to, can you boil everything that you do and everything you're about down to three, to three things? Mm. Thank you so much for all of your time. We have gone a little off script, but it's been so, so, so informative for me. Thank you for everything you've offered. And I will put your information in the show notes so people can go and follow you on Instagram as well. Mr. J Learning Space is just, and you know, I love the things you put on today about, you know, there's a sale, go and find these really great things that came out that you could use in your in your classroom. I mean, the things that you're offering is not only just philosophy, but also practicality as well. So thank you so much for all that you're putting out there. Oh, thanks. Pleasure. It is honestly a pleasure. And thanks for inviting me and the opportunity to chat about, you know, some big things, but, um, and get to know you a little bit more. I've loved listening to your podcast. So yeah, great to chat. So thank you.